definitely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. My name is Jay Moran and our guest in this uh, first portion of Buffalo What's Next is Jason Daniels. He is the Senior Legal Counsel for Catholic Health. Good morning to you, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us and giving us some of your time and perspective as well. Uh, Jason, we should tell you, as a, uh, a young attorney, he's been, uh, he's been at this business only for, uh, a rel- for some of us a relatively short period of time and pr- professionally. Uh, Jason is also a, a, a black man who grew up here in Western New York as well. And uh, because of that, uh, you're, when in, you're in places right now when it comes to the, with the Catholic Health Leadership Team or any other place, for that matter, when you get involved with leadership, one of the few people of color, correct? Yeah, no, there's there's not many. And I think you see that kind of throughout not only all the organizations, but, you know, in healthcare. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a reasonable thing. And I guess it, for you, it's something that you experienced as you were going through college and through your, your education. You have an MBA as well, plus your, your law degree. I mean, that's something you saw early on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Being in college, you know, as soon as you get to like junior, senior year, you just don't see many people that look like you. And then, you know, in law school, there's not a ton. And in business school, there, there's even fewer. So it's like you kind of start to get the idea of, you know, if, if these are the schools that feed these kind of jobs, that there's not a lot of people like me doing these kind of jobs. So it's like you just start to prepare yourself mentally. And, you know, you start to realize this is what this looks like. Can you tell, take us through that a little bit? Like you said, prepare yourself mentally. I mean, that's Easier said than done. You know, I wake up every morning trying to prepare myself mentally for things, and I, I look back at the end of the day, and I, whatever I prepared for didn't come come to fruition, and I didn't change. But what about for you? How how did you, like you said, prepare for those challenges that were ahead that you knew were going to be coming? Yeah, you know, you just you just look at it. I mean, for me, kind of growing up, I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to be a lawyer because I saw it on TV. Like, I watched a lot of court TV, and it, it became interesting to me. But, like, you know, coming up, I didn't know any lawyers or really have any experience and everything. It was just kind of, you know, what I had seen. And, you know, when I got to college, there were people, and you could just tell, you know, there were people who, you know, had parents who were lawyers and, you know, had different people who were in different professions, and they had some of that guidance. And myself, I kind of just, you know, figured it out on my own. And, you know, I found good mentors, you know, as I got further on and I got into law school and stuff. But, but early on, it was like, it was like, you know, just trying to navigate and to try to figure out, you know, what this looks like. So you had no specific role model, so to speak, as you were making your way along this, this journey? Not really. Yeah, it was just kind of like, you know, I, this is what I want to do. I think I could be I think I could be good at it. You know, these people seem to do well financially. That was a goal of mine. And, you know, I just kind of pushed forward. And, you know, really, as I got older and as I, you know, got more school behind me and everything, I started to really get a better idea of, OK, you know, this is good. And like, you know, this person, you know, it looks this person looks like somebody who, you know, I should talk to or, or do something with and everything, but a lot of it really came organically. What makes uh, what makes a good lawyer? What makes a good uh, somebody who who does your kind of work? So, so it, 
there's differences, right? So, you know, there there are some lawyers who are, you know, trial lawyers and there's courtroom lawyers and, you know, there's a specific skill set to do that. For me, kind of being more of an in-house corporate guy, it's really about people skills and it's about relationship building and it's about being able to, you know, being able to relate to all kinds of different people and, you know, have conversations and build trust. Let's go through your journey just a little bit, if we could, and talk about some of the things that you experienced. Uh, obviously, you know, we hear about it on so many levels of society about the difficulty it can can be for people of color and lots of things, especially in a community like Buffalo that has a high level of segregation. What about your journey along the way? What can you share with us that you know wasn't necessarily all that easy? Yeah, so um. You know, some things like, you know, I remember first becoming a lawyer and, you know, I would go into meetings with, you know, my with my paralegal who was an older white woman and, you know, everybody would assume she was a lawyer. And I was and I was just and that went on for like a month or so. And then, you know, people kind of started to get to know you and everything. But, you know, you have other situations like, you know, I had a, a situation this was some years ago where you know we had a meeting. I forgot what the meeting was about. But after the meeting, I was having a conversation with another employee about a football game or something like that. And, you know, a more senior lawyer who was, you know, an older white woman pulled me to the side afterwards and told me that I didn't speak in a way that, you know, she felt represented the organization well. And for me, that was like was one of like the first kind of moments where it was that was that kind of happened directly. So it kind of set me back a little bit. But then, you know, you have to you have to kind of, you know, take inventory of the situation, right? Like I'm, you know, a young black man and I'm in this department where, you know, our boss was a white woman and there's all these other, you know, everybody in the department's either a white woman or, you know, an Irish man. And, you know, if I, you know, get into it with this woman or something like that, you know, is it worth it? And sure. and how's it going to go for me? And, you know, you sometimes you run into those situations where people say, some, say you know, things that are off-putting. Like, for example, like, you know, I wear earrings. And early in my practice, you know, people would, you know, call it out or say something and everything. And it's just like, you know, you kind of have to laugh some stuff off that maybe you don't necessarily think is funny. Yeah. yeah. Just curious, back to that conversation about football. You, you said that, but what specifically was it just the way just a couple of guys talking about a game and just you know, the, way I have, you're, the passion I have, of it all? You know, I, I, have, I have no idea. But, really? you know, we were just talking about the game and talking about some players and stuff like that and everything. And I forgot exactly what the conversation was. But, you know, evidently she didn't like the way I said something or something I, I said. We certainly, you know, weren't using any profanity or anything like that. But it was just but, you know, that was that was a person who, you know, she came from a, an, another law firm where it also they you know, I don't think they ever had any employees of color or anything like that. And she came in and she was a little older and you could tell like she was a little older school about things. And, you know, she, you know, she just had, you know, weird ways. But for me, it was offsetting because, you know, at that time I was a person I'd been a lawyer for some time for, you know, at least a few years and, you know, went through law school and went through business school. And I'd been, you know, involved in all kinds of meetings and everything. And nobody had ever told me, you know, the way you speak isn't proper for, you know, for this organization. So it was like. Yeah. What about know. expectations? As you were talking about that, I was thinking when a man of color walks into a room, a professional room or wherever, it doesn't have to be there. It could be there. But what about that? Do you have a sense of people's expectations? They, they see you in there, you know, all, you know, all of a sudden they may expect you to be something that you are not. Do you ever get that kind of a reaction? Not so much. You know, especially early on, I would get like, you know, it would seem like people were surprised. Okay. But I was there because I was, you know, a pretty young guy and everything. But that would happen a little bit. I don't necessarily know about expectations. I know for myself, you know, my expectations of myself, you know, I have 
a lot of, you know, white friends who are lawyers. And, you know, we talk and we talk about like career and expectations and, and stuff like that and everything. And I feel like I always feel like they're a little more at ease than me. Like, you know, for me, I'm not necessarily uptight. Like, you know, I've been doing my job for a while. I, I feel like I'm really good at it. But, you know, there's always kind of this, I, you know, I think some people call it imposter syndrome where it's like, you know, you feel like, you know, this could end any time or like <laughs> something could happen. And you just, you know, you feel like you have to be more careful than I feel like other people do. Okay. And, you know, sometimes it's a little limiting. Because, you know, you'll see an opportunity or something like that and everything. You'll have to, you know, kind of dial it back in your head. While I feel like other people just feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be here. So this is supposed to happen. Wow. But yeah. yet you've been able to, to deal with that. Uh, can, can you take us through how you, again, go about dealing with the, that, that sense that you know that you, maybe you can't proceed quite as aggressively or as uh, naturally as maybe other people can? Yeah. I, I think at this point. You know, I've been at it for long enough where it's just part know, of who you yeah, are. Yeah, and, and it's just kind of a what happens happens things. You know, I, I, I operate under proceed until apprehended at this point. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I just keep going further and I do the best work that I can do. And, you know, I, I try to surround myself with people who I know are good people. Like, you know, right now, you know, I'm in a situation that at Catholic Health where my boss is a really good friend of mine. You know, and our CEO is a really good guy. And there's a lot of people who I know support me and support what we're doing. And I always like, you know, when I'm looking at opportunities and when I'm figuring out what I'm going to do next, that's really important to me. Like, you know, I always identify I'm like, you know, I need to have a boss who's a person that I connect with, who's a person that I like and I know is going to support me. So I feel comfortable, you know, being me and proceeding and everything because, you know, you hear horror stories about people who end up in really bad situations. Sure. And and I'm just like, you know. I've gotten to the point where, you know, my kind of peace of mind is more important than being in than making a little more money and being in a different position. So I've just, you know, I've just gotten to the point where, you know, it's it's really first it's about like the people and then it's about, OK, you know, this is the job that I like and everything. Proceed until apprehended. I'm going to take that and okay. steal that from you. By that, that is a memorable phrase right there for sure. Jason Daniels is our guest here on Buffalo. What's next? He's the senior legal counsel at Catholic Health. Um what about from learning through the legal system? And I, lawyers, I, I think you would agree with me, once trained, think differently than other people, right? They, um, people who aren't attorneys. There's, you go through a process of, of how to think about things, how yep. to think about issues. Has that helped, do you think, in like what you're talking about right here, of, of prioritizing, of, of knowing where your lines and the sand have to be when it comes to these types of relationships? Yeah, a, a little bit. You know, some, some, of it's, some of it's that. The other thing is, is just like learning how to read people. You know, for years, like when I was in college and, uh, I, you know, I waited tables and I bartended a little bit and I, you know, you get to be around different kinds of people and you just, you learn how to read people a little bit. And, and I feel like, especially in, in my line of work, like working in-house with a large organization, it's really about just building relationships and just kind of knowing, you know, what goes over with who and, you know, who kind of feels a certain kind of way and playing to that a little bit. You know, not, I, I think maybe playing to it is a bad, you know, is a bad characterization, but right. but just understanding how to deal with certain kinds of people, right? you know, and realizing that, you know, some people you have to meet them where they are because they're never going to be, you know, where you where you want them to be, but you know, you engage with them in a certain way anyways. And, you know, just knowing how to knowing how to, you know, have those conversations and relate to people. And, you know, there, you know, some people you you find common ground, right? Like, you know, some people you really don't have anything in common with. So you, you think about the basic things, right? Like, you know, we both like football or right. you know, we both like, you know, plays or traveling or just kind of whatever and you just, you know, really 
build relationships off of those commonalities. People use the term microaggressions yes. when it comes to dealing with uh, um, racial issues and such. What about for you? When you hear that term microaggressions, what do you think about? Oh, it happens all the time. Really? It, it, and the thing is, so, you know, it's not all intentional. Sometimes it's just, you know, somebody who's never spoke never spoken to somebody who looks like you before or, you know, isn't comfortable and, and things like that. And I think, you know, at least the way I operate is, you know, I try to create a safe space for people to, you know, I don't take myself super seriously. So, you know, if I'm having a conversation with somebody and it's not somebody that I'm familiar with, you know, I just try to make them understand that, you know, it's, it's a safe space. So, you know, if you say something that's not, you know, that's not something that's proper or, or something like that and everything, like I'll, I'll tell you about it, but, you know, it's always in a, you know, in a friendly way and, you know, very seldom is there, you know, very seldom professionally, at least, is there something malicious. Sure. You know, there's been a couple, you know, a couple small situations where there have been things that I felt was malicious. But most of the time, it's just, you know, misunderstandings. And I think there's two ways you can handle it. You know, I've seen people take those little small misunderstandings and make huge ordeals out of them and really blow things out of proportion. But, you know, the other way, which I, I think is the better way to really just use those as teachable moments and, you know, educate and talk through things and, you know, build relationships in that way. Because ultimately, once you take it out of proportion, people go back into their, you know, back kind of into their shells and you don't get anywhere. Yeah, it's an interesting approach to it. And I would, you would probably know well enough that not everybody would take it quite that right. Oh, right, not at right. all. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think especially with what you've seen over the last couple of years with really like, you know, there's, there's been a really big push in things like DE&I and, you know, after George Floyd and just a lot of what's going on, you see like a really big push and people are getting kind of really aggressive right away. And that's just not an approach that works with everyone. I mean, you got to think about it. You know, a lot of these people, right or wrong, they've operated in a professional environment where there's only been people that right. have looked like them in certain spaces for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So to expect that because this one thing happened, everybody's going to automatically change tomorrow, you know, it's not appropriate, you know, and it's not and it's not reasonable. So, you know. Obviously, people who have certain beliefs that are inappropriate, they have to change things and they have to, you know, really think about, you know, who they are, or what they're presenting, especially in the workplace. But but I think you kind of have to meet people where they're at a little bit and like bring them along instead of expecting everybody to be exactly where you are from day one. Sure. Yeah. Interesting about microaggressions. You've, you've nodded very quickly at the affirmative that you understand it. And our, our listening audience, it seems to me, this particular program has really resonated with them in a lot of ways. And if you wouldn't mind sharing what you, when it comes to microaggressions, if you mind sharing maybe a couple of examples. Because again, the, I think we have a lot of people who, since May 14th especially, want to make a difference. They want to make a difference. They want to make a difference in how they deal with people and how they can help this community move forward. What about some of those things that you've experienced that, that you know, this is something that happens a lot and you know, you'd rather yeah, like not yeah. see it happen. And, yeah, and yeah. you can understand maybe how others take, uh, take things a little more uh, offensive yeah. a little bit more. Absolutely. I mean, the, the one, I think the low hanging fruit one that happens all the time is when they introduce when they introduce people of color to leadership positions, they immediately say, you know, how well, how well they speak or, you know, <laughs> they're, you know, they, they seem, they present themselves really well. Or it's like, you know, they're, they're like compliments, but they're not compliments that they give to, you know, every other, you know, white man or woman sure. that's ever been in that role. And I, you know, I see that all the time. And that's like one thing that I immediately call out. I'm like, you know, well, have we ever done it? Like, do we do this in other, like, you know, why do we feel the need to say that this, you know, master's educated person speaks well. Obviously they speak well, right? Like, you know, those kind of things, you know, a lot of the things, especially when dealing with women of color, the hair, 
You know, there's okay. like, you know, just comments like that and not necessarily malicious comments, but like, you know, assuming because, you know, black woman has straight hair that she's Indian or or something like that. Or, you know, just, you know, assuming that every, you know, black man over six feet plays basketball, like, right. you know, just things like that or or listens to rap music or just, you know, things like that that I think come from a good place and maybe come from uncomfortability. But, you know, it's not necessarily the kind of comment that you would make towards, you know, a person of a different color or background. What advice would you have to uh, a, a white person, uh, again, this this type of person who you know, just you know, wants to go about doing things the right way, but they're older or whatever. They've lived in, like you said, yeah. you know, mainly places of non-color throughout their, their days and you know, between education and workplace and such. What, thought, what about that? What thoughts, you know, what would you like to see building relationships in that regard? What do, you, what do you think could help? Well, I'd like to say, first and foremost, the fact that they're thinking that way is like a big step in the right direction, right? Because there are a ton of people who couldn't care less about this and, you know, really have no interest in changing the way they think or anything like that. So, you know, the fact that a person's forward thinking and like, you know, has those thoughts in the first place is, is really good to begin with. One of my really close friends who was my original boss from a couple jobs ago and a great mentor of mine, you know, her and I are really good friends. We, you know, hang out, have dinner and stuff like that and everything. And, you know, she's a 64 year old white woman and I'm, you know, a young guy. And, you know, one thing that, that we connected on is she was just always really forward thinking. And she understood that she grew up in a time long before where, where things were different, but she was really open-minded and really kind of willing to accept that, you know, things have changed and, and understand that. And I think just kind of, you know, keeping your ears open and understanding things. And then also just trying to, you know, when people give you feedback, you know, not, not necessarily taking, not necessarily taking offense to it, especially if the feedback is respectfully given, but also just kind of thinking about, you know, purposefully thinking about the things you say and why you're saying them. Right. Like, you know, when you're writing an introduction for a new employee who's a person of color. Right. Look at look at the introductions you've written for employees before. And, you know, if there's a big difference, why? Why is that? Why am I saying this? And I didn't and I didn't say this before. And it takes work because those aren't, you know, things that we naturally do, because I think we all come kind of hardwired with, you know, stereotypes and sure. assumptions and things like that. Like there's times where, you know, I'll look at a person and I'll assume something because of the way they look or, or how they are. And that, you know, assumption isn't. And that assumption isn't correct at all. You know, one one thing I think about I think about all the time, like, you know, um, kind of you know being a being a younger guy you're on the weekends, you go into work to pick up, you know, you go into work to pick up papers or something like that, and you're dressed in whatever you wear you wear on the weekend. And the thing about you know being a lawyer, you know, it's like when you're in a suit or you're dressed up and everything, people look at you a certain way. Right. But you know, when you're in sweats and stuff, it's like it's different. And I've had some interesting interactions with, you know, security and with, you know, different people and stuff, just kind of off hours, come up to the office to pick stuff up. And those aren't the same kind of interactions that, you know, my, my white counterpart counterparts have had. So it's just kind of getting, you know, kind of getting through some of those things also. Wow. Uh, Jason Daniels with us uh, from Catholic Health. He's their senior legal counsel, and we're having a, a great conversation. It's interesting also in this regard, Jason, that you... Uh, as you mentioned in the last couple of years, these issues when it comes to race have become uh, at the forefront and deservedly so in workplace environments for sure. And you're a part of the of the leadership team at, at Catholic Health that's involved in the, the diversity and inclusion work that's going on inside uh, the company. Talk ab- about the approach. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm the program lead for that program. And, you know, it's been it's been really good. It's gone, actually gone a lot better than I thought it would in the beginning. But, you know, it's because 
you know, our CEO and, you know, a lot of people really support what we're doing. But, you know, so so first and foremost, we've, you know, we've we put the program in place and we've, you know, built committees at all the hospitals and we started to try to just be more involved in the community and work with schools and, you know, just do different things to make people feel more included. You know, we presented orientation and let new employees know kind of what we're doing and everything. We try to have programming and education and training and, and things like that. And, you know, we've done some really good things like, you know, this year. Catholic Health participated in the Pride Parade, which is like the first time that that's that that's ever happened. And, you know, people. And what was the reaction to that? So the reaction from you know our associates and our leadership was overwhelmingly positive. OK. But, you know, we have a lot of folks within the organization and, you know, attached to the organization who, you know, are religious and that's against their faith. And there was some pushback in that area, you know, where, you know, we we did get, you know, some negative feedback that went to, you know, some of the churches and some of the different things. And, you know, at that point we had already done it and, you know, it was like, can't unring the bell now, but it was, you know, afterwards kind of dealing with some of that blowback. It's like, you realize that, you know, you can't go a thousand miles an hour right. to do everything. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, again, when we talk about the Catholic religion, obviously a religion that's steeped in historic tradition, yep. uh, things don't uh, change very easily. But do you, do you see that though, that the organization itself, though, has has really made some strides in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Especially everybody's trying. Like that's the thing. the The biggest thing is is you know there are definitely some areas where we would like to be further than where we are, but ultimately you know everybody's supportive and everybody and everybody's trying and everybody's kind of on board, so to speak. But but it's just you know, it's just managing what on board looks like right. for for different people, and it's really you know just managing through you know some of the hospital. I, I think Sisters Hospital is like hundred years old, right? Right. So right. you know it's there's just you know a lot of people who you know think a certain kind of way, and it's about you know it's about bringing everybody on at the same time so you don't lose people because ultimately if you go you know a thousand miles this way and you know everybody was like oh you know that's too far or, or we're not quite ready for that now then you lose a ton of people right and if you don't have everybody on board then you don't really have a program you just have a few people kind of doing stuff so you know one of the really tough things to manage has just been going at the right pace for everybody and just kind of you know keeping everybody in the loop like i feel like you know you over communicate things and you just try to you know get people on board and make people comfortable with what we're doing but you know the one thing that I'll say, you know, even from, you know, folks from the diocese and, you know, folks in our leadership and everything like, you know, everybody's supportive and everybody's been involved and everybody, you know, was really supportive in doing this. And if you would have asked me before I joined the organization, you know, if that would have been the case, I don't know if I would have told you yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting. And what about uh, maybe on a broader perspective? And obviously you're only really familiar when it comes to your particular organization yeah. and your efforts, but Overall, what you're seeing in the workplace landscape um, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, what's your sense? Yeah, so so I see three different kinds of organizations, right? There's organizations who aren't doing anything at all, and it's just not a part of it. I see organizations who have, like, one employee, right? They basically, they pick said black person, make them chief diversity officer, and throw them into the pool. And many times that person's like the only person of color in their leadership team. Mm. And it's like, go do stuff, right? And that generally don't work, doesn't work. And then there's other organizations that, you know, you know, ours is definitely less mature in that area, but you see like M&T, they have, you know, a really good program. And, you know, Glenn Jackson over there, he's really good. And they do 
a lot of stuff and get a lot of people involved. But organizations that really try to engage lots of different people from different places in the organization and really kind of make it a, more of a team effort than a one person pushing it or than a we're not doing anything at all. Our culture's fine. So, you know, those are the, the three different things that I see. And, you know, I think it's more of a Buffalo thing because, you know, I have friends that you know, live down in Atlanta, live in D.C., live in different places, and they are light years ahead of us to some extent there are some organizations in those places too who are also like you know we don't care about that either so you know you get you know it's a mixed it's a mixed bunch it's interesting you bring up atlanta Uh, we had a conversation um a while ago with uh, madison carter who was here uh for uh, some time as a a reporter and she moved to atlanta and one of the conversations i brought up you know talk about the differences with atlanta and buffalo and she reflected a lot of what you just you just mentioned there, but I'm curious for a guy like you. You're you're a professional. You're you're you know obviously moved ahead in your your field very quickly. D- d- is there an attraction to go to a place like Atlanta or Washington? For me, yeah, no, because I'm a Buffalo guy, Good. and like I love Buffalo, and it's just you know it's just where I am. But the one thing I'll say, I have relatives that live in Atlanta and everything, and the one thing that you know we that really 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 is great in those places that we don't have here is you go to those cities and you see neighborhoods, affluent black and, you know, Hispanic. And like, you just see full neighborhoods with people of color, right. And they're affluent and they're nice neighborhoods. And it's almost surprising because you know, being from Buffalo, sure. if you go to a nice neighborhood, it's mostly white neighborhood. You know, I, I live in Williamsville and you know, <laughs> Williamsville, you don't really have many black neighbors, right. It's just, <laughs> it's just how it is. So to go other places and to be like in nice areas and to see lots of people that look like you, it's like, wow, like this is, you know, this is great. But for me, the thought process is always, I would love to have this in Buffalo. Not necessarily, I want to come here for this. I'm interested, uh, I want to get into this in a little bit, because you can bring a lot of different perspectives, both, uh, you know, from your personal journey, and also, of course, you you know, your legal background and and knowing the law. Uh, First of all, just when it comes to Buffalo, and what has kept it back, what do you see? What do you think? So, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, Buffalo is incredibly segregated just as far as the way it's the way it's split up and everything. But also it's about it's about like opportunities, about the the education you get and you live in certain places. Like, you know, for example, when I was a a kid, when I was a little kid, I went to school 37, which is, you know, right over right over in the fruit belt and everything. And I went there to about second or third grade. And then from there, I went to Chitawaga Central, which is like first ring suburb school, not like Williamsville or Clarence, but a better school. And I remember going from you know, 37 to Chitawaga Central, like, I felt like I missed a grade. Really? It was like, like, there was such a, there was such a difference in what they were teaching at one school than, than the other. And were you, you know, ready for it? Were you ready for it personally at the time? Well, I was a kid, so. You but know, you know what I'm saying? Know. But I'm just saying, like, you know, I mean, were you, did you grab, did you go up to speed very quickly? No, or did you, it, did it you struggle me, a little It took bit? me a couple years. Yeah. Like, okay. like really, I, you know, when I was at 37, you know, as a kid, I've always been a, a really good student and got really good grades sure. and stuff like that. And I went from being like an honor roll student to like a, just kind of barely making a student for a, for a little while. And after a couple years, you know, it clicked in and it worked and I ended up doing really, really well. Right. But there was definitely a gap. And, you know, at the time I didn't understand this because I was a kid, but looking back, I think to myself, like, you know, that could really frustrate somebody or, you know, if somebody really, you know, doesn't have the aptitude or doesn't have the support at home that, that I fortunately had and everything, it, it could be something that could really derail you. And kind of later on, you know, Chitawaka Central became more of a diverse school. And I saw a lot of peers kind of go through that and everything where they were really where they came from Buffalo public schools and they came from other schools and they really struggled and they couldn't quite get their footing. And, you know, they ended up, you know, becoming behavioral problems or, you know, having these other things happen or failing out or whatever. But 
you know, before because there weren't those there weren't those supports in place. So like one of the things that we've been talking about a lot with our DEI program now and with, you know, a lot of the, you know, mentoring and things like that are, you know, a part of, you know, wanting more diverse people is, you know, kind of helping them get here, right? So like, you know, I don't feel like you know, no offense to anybody who's, you know, part of that school system. I don't feel like the Buffalo Public Schools adequately prepare children of color because of problems at home, because of other things, to get to, you know, where I am today right. or to get to, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these positions and without pipelines, without organizations kind of reaching back and helping them get there. I just don't think that'll, that'll happen. And, you know, you see, especially during COVID, I mean, you know, you have so many households that, you know, they don't have internet and you have kids doing school from home. Right. right. And these are kids that are already behind. Like, you know, I remember being younger and I had friends that went to Burgard and Bennett and different schools and you go and you go in those schools. And it's just very clear that it's just very clear that, you know, they're behind. I don't know how they look now, but I remember at the time, like there were some things that were set back, like you know, metal detectors and stuff like that, and everything that that I just wasn't accustomed to. So you know, I I feel like a big part of the problem is is that you know, your zip code, which is predicated on how well your parents do, has a lot to do with how well you're educated, and it perpetuates because you know a, a couple people, you know, they do really well and they move sure. and they move into nice neighborhoods and they get their kids a good education and it's fine, but the you know, the lion's share of people end up kind of staying where they grew up and they get a poor education and their kids get a poor education and their kids after that. And, you know, you just don't see the kind of growth. And a few people make it out, you know, like, of you course. know, a few people who are, you know, lawyers and doctors, kids get into city honors or something like that and they end up doing well. But for the most part, there's a lot of people that are left behind. And you see it more as an, I, uh, as a result of some sociological yeah. elements you know, what, you know, the family situation and wherever the case may be, yep. you know, a, a single parent trying to raise yeah. three kids. Yep. yep. And, and I mean, no, my mom was a single parent. Right. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, you know, I had uncles and I had a grandfather and I had other people who, you know, really, you know, really cared a lot about me succeeding and they helped me. But a lot of people didn't have that. I mean, a lot of my friends didn't, didn't have that. You know, I had a friend who, you know, his mom was a single mom and she was really on her own. And, you know, she was working a lot of hours to kind of make things happen. And while she was working, he was getting into stuff that he shouldn't have got into. And he ended up getting into some trouble. And, you know, really, you know, as a young black man, once you get into trouble, it's over. How did uh, things turn out for him? If you, don't you know, he's, you know, he's out of jail and kind of in and out and working regular jobs and stuff like that. But, you know, his potential, if he had better, you know, supervision and supports and everything was a lot more than what he became. And, and you see that a lot, you know, I have a sure. lot of friends that, you know, I went to school with who were in similar situations who, you know, maybe they didn't go to jail or maybe it wasn't the extreme, but they just, you know, never did what they could, what they could do. And, you know, they just, you know, I guess they do fine. They pay their bills and stuff like yeah. that and everything, but they weren't able to accomplish the things that they were definitely capable of because, you know, it's not a, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think people, those people lack talent. I just think they lack opportunity. Right. And, you know, opportunity is not, not evenly shared. That's where the equity piece comes in. There's just not equity and opportunity and then, you know, ways out and things that you can do. And you think it needs to start considerably younger. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about like, like kids, like, yeah. you know, those formative years. Yeah. Those formative years. Like you, you have to, because, because I mean, we were talking about this beforehand, right? Like, you know, my boss right now went to Joe's and our CEO went to, went to Canisius, you know, at my last job, my boss went to Joe's <laughs> right. the job before that, you know, <laughs> right. boss went to, like, and you see these 
elite private schools and these really good schools. Like, you know, most of the lawyers that I went to law school with that were local, you know, if they didn't go to Joe's or Sacred Heart or Canisius or one of those schools and everything, they went to Williamsville or Clarence or one of those schools. Or, you know, if they went to Buffalo Public Schools, it was, it was um, city honors. You know, I didn't even go to school with any Chicawaga Central <laughs> graduates, right. graduates in law school. And it just shows, you know, there are certain places where people are getting the education that puts them in these spots. And there are other places where they're just not. So, and you're you're a lawyer, um, but you obviously have thought considerably about this when it comes to the education system in Buffalo and probably a lot of other places as well. Do you think what do you think the focus needs to be? What needs to be done? What can be done to change these realities? You know, I don't know, right? Because you know, it's not money. Because Buffalo public schools they spend more money than anybody than anybody else. You know, I think more of a I think more concentration on like you know the home and the parents and the the people right like you know you see a lot like for example the the top shooting happened right and you know all the businesses came in and they handed out a lot of money and they did a lot of charity work right which is fine that that's great to do and everything but you know the way you could really make an impact is to employ some of those people right and you know i see you know i engage with a lot of organizations and everything and they you know go and they give out diversity scholarships and they participate in these programs and everything but they don't hire any of these people they don't even interview any of these people right so like you know especially in the law firm world like in the law firm world there there are a lot of law firms who you know participate in the programs and they give money to schools and they come in and they you know rah rah and they put it in their newsletter but then when it's time to hire people when it's time to give people opportunities they're not looking at people of color and you know it's Fairly recently, some law firms have started to do it because I and because I think they're getting pressure from clients and things like that. But overall, there's just not really a push in those communities to hire people and to help them and to help them get ahead. And I think ultimately, you know, if you start to if you start to build programs where you're hiring people and you're giving people good jobs, because I mean, people want to make a good living, sure. a good living and support their family. And if they're able to do that with you know a regular job where they don't have to work three jobs and eighteen hours. I think you'll see them be able to spend a lot more time parenting and, and doing those kind of things. But, you know, it's more than just, you know, this horrible thing happened. Let's give out money or let's, right. you know, give money to the food pantries. It's like, why do people need to go to food pantries? You know, why why do these things exist in the first place? And I think it's because opportunities just, you know, people don't have those opportunities. Uh, wrapping up here with uh, Jason Daniels uh, this morning on Buffalo What's Next. And there we've heard this term use, uh, you can't imagine what you can't see, yep. that you know, there's not a lot of black professionals, especially like we've already gotten into in the city of Buffalo, in these segregated neighborhoods, these poor neighborhoods. Um, what about that? What, what is there something there that, again, I mean, you know, you're only one person, you're yep. only one guy. But what about getting those people who have succeeded, getting them in front of other one, other people? Does it matter? What does it matter to have? You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jason Daniels show up at, you know, the second grade uh, uh, class at a public school. Does it matter? I think it matters a ton. You know, I I would have loved to I would have loved to have seen me when I was younger. And I think I think it's encouraging. I think, you know, a lot of people coming up like you don't see anybody succeed in that way that looks like you. So it's hard to like it's hard to imagine a path to do this thing that you've never seen anybody that looks like you do. So I think I think it's really helpful for people to go in and mentor and do things like that. Like, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, I adjunct at ECC City sometime. Okay. And the reason that I do that is because, you know, coming up, you know, from pretty much third grade all the way through, like I never had a professor or a teacher who was a person of color. So, and that was one thing I was like, you know, if I ever get into a position, I would love to change that. Like I would love to, you know, 
be that be that person. And I, you know, go and I, I teach business classes. And afterwards, people come up to me and they want to talk to me and they want to engage. And they're like, you know, I've never, you know, had a teacher who was a person of color. Or I've never like been around somebody and you build those and you build those relationships. And I think that helps people understand that, wow, you know, this is this is possible or or I can do this. And I think the earlier you engage people and just kind of, you know, get their minds working that, you know, there's a path for you. There's a way for you to get to where you want to go to. I think the earlier, the better, because, you know, ultimately that'll at least have that'll at least have an impact on them. You know, you, you don't know what their home situation or anything like that, but they'll understand that, you know, there's another path to success besides kind of what I see on TV or, you know, the people that I see, you know, that are famous and things like that. Jason Daniels is senior legal counsel at Catholic Health. He joins us this morning on Buffalo. What's next? Jason, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great having you. We have more to come. This is Buffalo. What's next? You know those dance moves you've been practicing? You know the ones. Well, they can make their debut with WBFO The Bridge at our first ever silent disco at our studios on October 1st. Whether you love hip-hop and R&B, throwback and top 40 hits, or especially WBFO The Bridge, there will be something for everyone. Join us for this COVID-cautious event with added accessibility features. For tickets and even more information, visit wned.org events. Support for the silent disco is provided by Project Best Life. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way and you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. The objective of our group is to be as diverse and as inclusive as possible, where we can reach as many individuals with disabilities in the service area that we serve, where we can bridge the gap between individuals with disabilities as well as NFTA and the services that we provide. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. Mark Overall is with us for this segment. He's president of the Buffalo Urban League's Young Professionals Group. We're going to be talking a little bit about what they do, but also, obviously, as we do on each episode, what he's seeing in the community, what groups might be out there working on repairing and helping. Mark, thanks so very much for being here. Dave, thanks for having me. How large is the Young Professionals Group? Uh, in terms of members, probably around... It varies between 50 and 90. I don't mm. think we've ever eclipsed 90 yet, but we're, we're going to. Part of the segment that Jay just had on before us was looking at how black people navigate positions of power in a corporate world right. that is oftentimes dominated more by whites. Does the Urban Professionals Group address that? Or Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the... One of the <laughs> 
one of the re- one of the main benefits to a group like uh, YP, which we call Young Professionals sure, for sure. short, is uh, is oftentimes it creates that after work space for uh, majority Black and Brown Networking. professors. Yes, I mean, but a lot of a lot of people are either one or one of the you know a very select group, a small group of. Uh, minorities in their workspace so yeah so kind of navigating those spaces is actually one of the more common talking points how large is the problem or the disparity the difference um i mean it varies i mean a lot of a lot of young professionals do work in a nonprofit space so in that area it's a little and that's an area that i imagine isn't quite as much of if we dare say an offender yeah as the corporate world as the corporate world but in okay. the corporate world when you're thinking about banks when you're thinking about you know, large conglomerates, it can get uh, pretty. The numbers can be pretty low when it terms when it comes to black and brown representation. What's so, the spinoff effect of that? If the numbers are low, what problem does that then create in the community? Uh, oftentimes, focus on outreach. Uh, oftentimes, approaches. Uh, you know, sometimes per- perfect example uh, when. A tragedy happens like May 14th. Sure. Um, oftentimes there are companies and organizations that want to give to support, which is great. I mean, but uh, oftentimes the people that they're either giving to or the people that are executing the support in a neighborhood like, you know, the Jefferson Fruit Belt area uh, don't look like the residents. And so, so so things like that would be often mitigated or even eliminated by having um, more representation at the table when it comes to planning, saying, hey, you know what, if we're going to send people into this neighborhood, we're going to de- deploy in people into this neighborhood. Let's let that re- let let them let those people look like the people that they're serving. We've had mental health counselors on this program say that for them, that has certainly been an issue, It is um, that there just aren't enough practitioners of color for people to feel comfortable talking about really sensitive issues with someone who doesn't look like them. Absolutely. Um, I also imagine it is an issue. um, They raised it this weekend. There was a summit this weekend on Saturday. Yes. Where they talked quite a bit about the idea that plans are good, progress is good, four months after the shooting we have to do something, but darn it all, those plans, they said, have to come from people of color. That too often they're... I don't want to say imposed, but too often maybe they're brought to the table by others. I would agree. Okay. Uh, I think I think oftentimes, and, and you can look throughout history, but you know, if 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 I, I don't want to get too contentious, but All right. I will say, if you look throughout history, I think it's always going to be problematic if you have a group saying, "Hey." We're from the outside, but we think these this are is what your, you should yeah, do. This is what these are your problems, and this is how you should solve them, right? And and I, I think that that'll be a little off-putting to any group of people. Historically, is that a scenario that occurs more with people of color? Do you think? Well, I, yes. I mean, it's with, with the Native Americans, with the Africans, with uh, Black people in America, with. Uh, I mean, Hispanic people. I mean, yes, it's it's been constantly a, a thing. So we try to, we try to. One thing I like about the Urban League is that you know we're not, we don't we we're not separatists when it comes to who our allies are. Mm. We we like to form you know 
bonds and, and allyship with everyone. However, uh, when it comes to the execution of how help and change should be implemented, we need to be at the forefront and we ask to be at the forefront because we know the needs of our community. That's why, you know, shout out to Thomas Buford and the Urban League staff for putting that resource center right at Jefferson and Glidwood saying, hey, we're going to deploy these resources here because we know that this is ground zero and we know that this is a community that needs uh, those extra services. And uh, and I let me just say, say one more thing. Uh, YP was one of the groups that served as greeters at uh, Johnny B. Wiley mm. when because people were coming in for yeah. the free mental health consultations. Right. The but day the, of, the day yeah, after. The day at that whole the whole right. two weeks after. But the point is the the clinicians didn't look like the residents. Mm. So they wanted YPs and other organizations like that to say, hey, you know, welcome. We're glad you're here. While you're waiting, is there anything we can do for you? Because we look like the residents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mark Overall is here. He's president of the Buffalo Urban League's Young Professionals Group. You just mentioned Thomas Buford. He's president of the Urban League. We've had him here on the program before. But for folks that didn't uh, necessarily hear that program or don't want to go on and hunt it down online, give me the very quickest of recaps. What is the Urban League? So the Urban League, let me just say it, the National Urban League, was started in I think 1910, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. and Buffalo chapter is an affiliate of it, uh, and it was it was founded for two reasons, two main reasons: to you know the Great Migration, people moving from the South to the North and the Midwest and the West, and those people often coming from urban uh, rural areas, you know, farmers, sharecroppers, things like that. Mm. They needed jobs and housing. They were relocating from, you know, rural Alabama, rural Georgia, rural Mississippi, moving to urban cities like Buffalo, New York City is where the headquarters is, places like that, Chicago, D.C. And it's okay. Now they're in urban areas since the Urban League. Yeah. And they need one, a place to live and they need to and they need places to work. So when the the organization was founded saying, hey, these are people overall, not everyone, of course, that uh, coming from, you know, blue collar farming backgrounds, they need to be trained on different areas of vocation. So it was founded to train them. So and then Buffalo chapter came in the 1920s. We're coming up on 90 years. Uh, our, our anniversary is coming up. So and that's it. But it has since evolved past yeah. just housing and jobs to uh, entrepreneurship, to first time home home ownership, to, um, you know, adoption and foster care, to basically. Uh, trying to, I always nutshell it as saying the Urban League is exists to give every person, regardless of their color, access to the American dream. And that is, you know, a job that pays a decent wage to live in a good neighborhood, to raise your kids in a good area and to go to good schools. Oh, so. you just opened up the box, though. <laughs> um, is there generally a lack of access? And I'm, I'm asking this somewhat rhetorically because I think I know the answer. But tell me to what extent or there is a lack of access to the American dream. So when when you look at it in and and again not trying to be too contentious but I you know I can talk about oh, this all day. Oh come on. We like con- be sure. contentious. Sure. Okay. okay. So so when it comes to when it comes to access uh, I think Cornell West said it best. He said, you know, oftentimes we uh, America, the largest society, will say that says, you know, hey, you can be great, you can be this, you can be that. But the overwhelming majority of people are, you know, have less than a hundred dollars a month after they pay pay their expenses. They, you know, a lot of people live from check to check. They're going to have their kids are in bad schools, and they put up these celebrities like Barack Obama and LeBron James and say, "And we want, we want the vast majority and the black masses to live vicariously through these mm-hmm. few celebrities." And I, so, so when you look at it as yes, 
you know, do we have more black faces in high places? Yes, we do. But like Dr. West said, but yes, if you take every black face in a high place, he has a hundred cousins on both sides of his family that live below the poverty line. So that's, so that's why when you think about the access, you think about, uh, is success widespread or is it very selective and limited? And I think that the answer overwhelmingly is the latter. All right. Now talk a little bit about generational wealth, because part of that discussion, the idea that there isn't access to the American dream stems a little bit from the lack of generational wealth. Absolutely. So it, <laughs> it's uh, I was I don't know if I was listening to a podcast or something the other day. And uh, but it was it was it was an interesting. It was a, a black man and, a, and I think it was a white woman. And she was being very candid about her advantages in life. She said, yeah, you know, when it was time for me to go to school, you know, I went. I didn't have to pay for college. I didn't. I don't have to worry about student loans. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents, you know, she said her parents made about $400,000 a year. So they were able to send her to a, a top-tier school. And that was also she gets out. She gets a job. She's not fighting from behind. You know, she's not, oh, I got a job making $70,000. Great. But I got $100,000 student loan debt, right? So um, that's typically the case with more black and brown people. So when you talk about generational wealth, uh, say you want to start, you know, a bakery or anything like that, you know, you can say, hey, you know, I got this idea. I want to start a a business. Okay, cool. We're we're behind you. Here's $150,000 in seed money because your parents and your parents' parents have that money passed down. And sometimes it's even through a life insurance policy or Mm -hmm. it's through, you know, when someone dies, regardless. I mean, but you're able to, because the wealth has been passed down, not just from the Rockefellers and the Carnegie, but but through just normal people, because the wealth has been passed down, you often have that head start versus most people I know, especially on the east side of Buffalo. If you say, hey, if you want to start a business and you could you go to a family member to give you $50,000 to start it, most of them will say, And banks are willing to help out someone who has a pre-existing cushion. Absolutely. Rather than, hey, no, I've got a great idea, but I'm starting from scratch, Mr. Banker. (laughs) Absolutely. That that won't necessarily uh, work. That won't cut it. It doesn't go over as well. It's it's funny. Credit and lines of credit and business loans and even SBA loans are are extended much more freely to people who, like you said, either have the cash in the bank or can show that they have that access to capital. Now, part of the reason why I asked about generational wealth is not only because it's it's a good issue and we need to touch on it, but you're also part of a group called the Emerging Philanthropists of Color. Yes. Those two concepts in my head do not necessarily go together because philanthropy requires the money to make the donation. It does. But and, and that's exactly why EPC was founded. So underneath the the there's two umbrellas underneath the, the large umbrella of the Community Foundation of Greater Buffalo. You have another organization called CGLI, Community of Giving Giving Legacies Initiative. Okay. Right? And that is specifically for. Um, directing and funneling funds to uh, black and brown communities, right? So as a part of that, uh, Emerging Philanthropists of Color was founded as, a, as under CGLI to say they wanted to change what philanthropy looks like, right? So what, what and this is, like I said, within the last 10 years, it's, it's, mm. not an, it's not an old organization. But what it is, is it's a group of people pooling our resources together i think our dues are like three hundred dollars and we pool those resources together from all the from all the members 
and we award grants to nonprofits working in black and brown communities. Mm. But the point is, uh, it's to change the perception of what philanthropy is, because oftentimes, like you said, I don't have to. You think, you know, when you think of philanthropy, you think of Kellogg, you think of uh, the Community Foundation, you think of LeBron James. And and, but, you know, EPC is saying, hey, you know, we can take three hundred dollars from a bunch of average working you know, people and put it towards and aggregate it together so it has a greater impact absolutely down the road. Okay. And that's what it's about. And about how many people are a part of that? Ooh, members, I'd have to check. I don't I don't know. I, I, I that's a good guest to have on your show, Aaron Horde. He's okay. He's, he's, we'll add him he, to the list. Yes, add him to the list. Horde H O R D. He's uh I think he's at the kinda at the head of uh EPC right now and he could he could give you more membership numbers but you know we do what we can we I've been a part of the organization since I think 2018 or 2019 and it is one of the most uh, fulfilling and impactful things that I've done in my uh, recent years where does the money trickle down to what kind of organizations has it supported in the past um, man, I think last year we gave two we give two twenty five hundred dollar grants every year and last year was it the King Urban Life Center? Mm. And it was another place out in Niagara Falls. It might have been, I'm struggling. It's, okay. it's been a year ago. It's, I'm struggling. Aaron will be a better place. All right. First time. Yeah. Talk, we have about uh, five minutes, a little longer than that left. And uh, I always like to try and close the program looking at specifically some of the community la- needs that now still linger, what, four months after the shooting. Uh, and if you're talking about philanthropy and addressing needs, I think we need to just take a quick minute or two and talk about what the biggest need right now is in the community and um, answer it holistically, apart from any of the groups that you're involved in, just what are you seeing out there that needs to be taken care of? Uh, I would have to go, if we're talking holistically, I would probably start with education. Mm. And because, you know, you know, my... I go to Bethesda, Pastor uh, Bishop Michael A. Badger. He's big on education, and um, he he said some things yesterday because he's big on education. And uh, and then I saw a show uh, last night. Uh, There's a show on FX called Atlanta, and it and it the the episode showed a young kid who you know he started he started dancing in school, and then they thought, oh, he's a problem kid. Let's hold him back. And then, and then child services got called, and then they wound up shipping him to this horrible foster care place that wasn't a foster care. But the 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 point is, the data has been overwhelmingly clear for years that black and brown children are suspended at a higher yep. rate, black and brown children are expelled at a higher rate, black and brown children are placed in in-school suspension at a higher rate. And the thing is, when you're taking kids out of school. Uh, you're putting them behind, yeah. and 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 the phrase you know it's easier to create you know, I think uh, strong children and to repair broken men something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think if if we're talking about holistically, we have to start with education because we it, you know we already took out so much from the school. We took out you know auto mechanics and and, and, and electrical programs, plumber. Pro- you used to be able to graduate from high school with a skill or a trade that would provide for you and your family right out of high yeah. school taking those away and saying hey everyone has to go to college knowing that there's a disparity in the amount of funds and wealth and you know and income that people have to send people to college that goes again ties right into what we said a minute ago about you know 
having student loan debt, being putting off getting married, putting off buying your first home, putting off building your credit because you already come in, come into uh, adult life with a horrible debt to income ratio. So I would say start with education, start with K through 12, even K through six and um, really focus on cutting out the suspensions, focus on putting more black and brown teachers in our classrooms. That's another thing, particularly black and brown male teachers. That's a huge issue. Mm. I think I can remember one in my entire public school life. I had one black male teacher, um, a lot of black female teachers, but one black male teacher. Here in the Buffalo district? Here in the, I went to nothing but Buffalo public okay. schools. Okay. I went to Olmstead and I went to Bennett. And it was nothing but, I went to school 82 as a kid, but but for, yeah, middle school, Olmstead, and then for grade, uh, middle school, grade school, Olmstead, and then high school, I went to Bennett. I had one black male teacher. So it's it's a it's a disparity. It's something that, and, and, and I'll say this, I don't want to get too, but you see the links that people go to to, uh, bring people in. You look, look at NFTA. Oh, you can earn your, you can drive and earn your CDL. So, so say that about your teaching certification. Say we want to specifically, and they do, but th- we want to specifically increase the amount of black male teachers. We want to specifically increase the amount of black and brown minority teachers, black and black and brown teachers in the Buffalo public school systems, and we want to have those people also being at the table for administrative decisions and decisions that affect the day-to-day lives of our children. Why are you specifically saying black male teachers? Is that because that's where the disparity is? I, I, I say that's where the biggest disparity is, but I would say because I think for black boys, we often tend to look for representation in other areas. Black boys, they will see it in music, we'll see it in rap, we'll see it in sports, we'll see it in all these other things. But most black men, young men, we say, you know, who is a black male in your community that you look up to? You know, now, fortunately for us, we've had Byron Brown in office for almost 20 years. Yeah. So, I mean, but outside of that, most people would be hard pressed to, to name a black male teacher. And every black boy who's looking up to LeBron James or Barack Obama mm-hmm isn't necessarily going to be president or a basketball star. Of course not. So there's a void in there of achievable role models. Exactly. Okay. But someone who's going every day, going into a classroom, affecting and molding the minds of tomorrow, that's something very proximate, and that's something that a lot of people can aspire to. All right. Last last little bit here. Tell me what – I gave you a magic wand. (laughs) Wave it. All the problems go away. Um, but but if you were able to do just one thing, um, and, and you kind of maybe answered it when you said education is the priority, um, what would be the one thing that, man, you'd love to see achieved? It's funny. I ask that question a lot. Um, I, I know it's cliche, but I'd have to go with I, – I, even race – I'd have to go with hatred. I think if everybody showed more love, I would say I'd eliminate racism, but even beyond that, I'd say hatred. Because if you eliminate hatred and and, and there was really a, a sincere and genuine love for mankind, then that would eliminate racism, that would eliminate classism, that would eliminate sexism, that would eliminate homophobia, that would eliminate all of these other things. Uh, so I think that if we had this somewhat of a utopian society, which I know is unrealistic, um, it would it would just create a system and a society and a world where everyone could could achieve and succeed. Is there a baby step along the way? A lot of people have said um, more integration, more people from the example I always use. Forgive me, people in arcade, more people from arcade having a meal on the east side, that I th- kind of thing. Uh-huh. I, I think that the the baby step is we have to 
we have to have honest conversations and we should not allow um, racism to prevail when the under the law. I, I, I say as someone who has a legal background, I say that when when we create laws as a part of a social contract about how human beings should treat each other. Right. And I think that when you have instances where you you have evidence of people being mistreated, people being discriminated against, people being, you know, being the subject of disparate treatment. I think the law should correct that. And I don't think that we should delay in that correction. I don't think that we should try to hide that correction. I don't think that we should try to wash over that correction. I think that we need to call a spade a spade and say, look, this is an issue. This is what the law says. Everyone's treated equally and we need to take steps to rectify it immediately. All right, Mark, thanks for so much for being here. Dave, thanks for having me. Mark Overall, president of the Buffalo Urban League's Young Professionals Organization. That'll do it for this episode. You are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.